Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We gather for ordered worship to illumine the imagination by the beauty of God, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, to devote the will to the purposes of God. The liturgy, music, and homily in this hour are offered for our gathered summer congregation here at Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, your decisions about forms of ministry in our midst, and as the Spirit moves come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
we pray together. Keep, O Lord, your household, the Church, in your steadfast faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with boldness and minister your justice with compassion. For the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, in this moment in our service of worship, we pause. Our choir will sing for us the traditional Kyrie, and we take a moment to recognize in meditation our need of the divine and to recognize in meditation our need of curiosity and humility. Before the scripture, curiosity, and before its truth, humility. Before our experience, curiosity, and our sense of presence, humility. Before our neighbor, his integrity, and before our neighbor, curiosity and humility before his and her need. We pause to gather ourselves, recollect ourselves in curiosity and humility. Let us pray. Sirsum Corda, lift up your hearts. Beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. The lesson from the book, first book of Samuel, chapter 15, verse 34, to chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at, on at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. The word of the Lord.
A lesson from St. Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer to those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in the right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything owed has passed away. See, everything has become new. The word of the Lord. Please join me in reading responsibly verses from Psalm 20 with the antiphon. The name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your victory and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord will help his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories by his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we shall rise and stand upright. Give victory to the King, O Lord. Answer us when we call. Please rise for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel lesson.
The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Glory to you, O Lord. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when this will be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished. Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Yet this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. seated. 
A few years ago, Boston University was graced by the voice and presence of Andrew Young, activist, pastor, theologian, congressman, ambassador, mayor, close confidant to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. One pastor said of him, he is one of our wise men. We were honored to be at breakfast with him across a round table here in the Howard Thurman Center. For those of a certain generation, those of us now with bifocals and aging joints, haphazard memory and thinning hair, Andrew Young is indeed a wise man and an icon, too. We are aware, too, that for ranges of humanity and other generations, his name, Andrew Young, is slipping from its household word quality into more of a vintage mode. C'est dommage. Mr. Young answered several questions. One was this. What should the relationship be of politics and religion? You might be surprised at his answer some years ago. It recalls St. Paul in the 15th chapter of Romans extolling the virtue of those, Paul's enemies, who nonetheless were preaching Christ. There is wisdom in magnanimity, and there is magnanimity in wisdom, said Young. Every great revolution in the history of this country was supported by a religious revival or enthusiasm, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement. No, I do not agree with Pat Robertson and those folks, but I also recognize that they're doing some good in the world sending missionaries, feeding the hungry, other good things. One way or another, faith and politics invariably go together, he concluded. It is a particular, peculiar, and potent intersection of the two, politics and faith, which concerns us this morning. In our time, religion and politics have intersected in part at an unusual point, that of the doctrine of the last things, of eschatology, of apocalyptic, the doctrine of the Christian hope. As we have propounded for six years from this very pulpit, on a reliable hope hangs our future. But to approach such a globe-saving, history-opening hope, I speak here of salvation in the little and in the large. We shall need to clear the ground of unreliable hope. The remaining historic churches, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, ourselves included, have done a relatively poor job in contesting this region of the scripture, this region of hope. We have not steadily and repeatedly reminded both church and culture about what, historically and so theologically, we may understand regarding biblical teachings about hope. We have not done our job fully to translate tradition into insight for effective living. And to some degree, we have turned aside from the apocalyptic language and imagery of the New Testament in turn, embarrassed, frightened, offended, or simply baffled by the ancient hope, like that in Mark 13, read just a few moments ago. 
And what has become of the void of interpretation we have left behind? It has become filled by material about being left behind. Of all the dangerous literalisms which can infect the pseudo-interpretation of scripture, none has become more damaging than the literal non-historical rendering of apocalyptic material in the New Testament. Two summers ago, one of our Marsh Chapel members came by the office. He told me about his workmates who were reading popular apocalyptic material from the late great planet Earth to left behind and much in between. He said, can you do something to address this part of Christianity for the rest of us? His question is the basis for our National Summer Preacher Series this year, 2012. Over 10 weeks, beginning this Sunday, we shall do our best with a little help from our friends at Boston University to respond. I thank in advance Dr. Knust, Dr. Walters, Dr. Jacobson, and Brother Whitney for their support in the preaching of the gospel this summer on the theme, Apocalypse Then. This summer we shall present sermons in June, July, and August, which intend to provide reasoned, historical, and theological reflection on some of the apocalyptic passages and themes in the New Testament. Our hope is to provide publicly accessible, yet theologically responsible, perspectives on these texts in contrast to some other current and popular forms of interpretation. And we are privileged to present these preachers, our colleagues this summer from the Boston University School of Theology, each of whom brings particular interest and expertise in this area. For many along the North and South shores, listening by radio, finishing breakfast, tuned to the radio waves, for many people living culturally outside the range of religious reality that encourages such literal apocalyptic language, the broad reading and public enjoyment of such literature may seem almost unbelievable. How did 20 million homes accommodate copies of the, of the fictional accounts of rapture in the Left Behind series alone? How did this series become the primary lens through which, for many, the Christian hope is seen? Kevin Phillips' recent work, American Theocracy, in his two chapters, Radicalized Religion and Defeat and Resurrection, put a full spotlight upon this phenomenon, including its connections to political agendas. According to Phillips, 55% of all Americans believe that the Bible is literally true, and 59% of all Christians expect the events of the book of Revelation to occur. When combined with the sort of covenantal exceptionalism and righteous remnant perspective that often accompanies such a reading of the scripture, you know, found in the past in Ireland and South Africa and the American South at crucial junctures. The influence of literal apocalypticism has become significant lost cause religion and becomes the seedbed for left behind theology. Further, 
these affirmations and perspectives are often tinged with a particular kind of understanding of God's will. For example, a few years ago during the outing of a bright, effective, large church pastor who homiletically condemned but privately practiced homosexuality, several evangelical commentators reflected on God's timing in bringing forth this revelation about Pastor Haggard. Quote, God just decided that it was time to bring this to people's attention, end quote, is a comment typical of this position. Timing is everything, but is everything God's timing? On this mistaken view, God is free, but we are not. God is free to be, but humans are slaves of providence. God is making the choices about when outings occur, not actual humans. At crucial points, there is on this worldview, this literal apocalyptic worldview, a hearty willingness to let go of human freedom, human responsibility, and human wisdom gained through hard experience, and to let God take the blame, which, of course, is the sad heart of literal apocalyptic. In apocalyptic, the future is not open, not evolving, not influenced by the myriad choices of individuals and groups, and so not my responsibility. I can let that go. No, in apocalyptic, the future is assured by God, controlled by God, chosen by God, and so is God's sole responsibility. So, in letting go, I let God be, well, God. It is a temporarily consoling, a kind of consolation literature, a consoling perspective for those who crave such fleeting consolation. It is a darkly fascinating rendering of the slogan, let go and let God. But it is not true. Not to our reason, not to our experience, not to our tradition, and finally in careful interpretation, not to our scripture either. So for a few moments, we will summon our curiosity and our humility in the reading of scripture. On the basis of sound biblical interpretation, that is, it is time to leave behind, left behind thought. Our gospel lesson, Mark 13, to begin, was probably written in or near the year 70 AD in the shadow of that century's Judeo-Christian version of 9-11, the final destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Our chapter today assumes that the reader, just beyond what was read, you will find this verse, let the reader understand, that the reader will intuit the, the imagery of buildings and stones and will have a sense of what is meant. More, the later gospels are written in the ever-lengthening shadow of a truth hard to swallow, at least for the early church that the end was not, in fact, in sight. 
Jesus, Paul, the earliest church, and most of the New Testament carry the common expectation that within days or years, but soon, the apocalyptic apocalyptic end of the world will occur. All were mistaken. Even 2 Peter, who changes the math and makes a day equal to a thousand years, has grudgingly to wrestle with the delay, the postponement, of the first Christian's fervent hope, the bedrock of primitive Christian theology found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and elsewhere. You read that several times and you will get a sense of what this apocalyptic hope entailed. It is early Christian mythology and as with all myth, it carries meaning, including meaning for us, which we shall hear and see this summer. But as a worldview, as a full worldview, a view of history, it is wrong. It did not happen. What Jesus predicted and what Paul expected and what Mark awaited did not happen. The end did not come. And centuries of further sparkles of expectation from the Montanists to the medieval mystics to the Millerites of upstate New York, to the Jonestown community of 1978, to the Y2K enthusiasts of just a few years ago, did not make it so. Mark my words, December 12, 2012, will also come and will also go with the sun rising and the sun setting the next day, I guarantee it. This biblical apocalyptic may be mythologically meaningful, but it is chronologically corroded. Further, the language and imagery of the New Testament are apocalyptic through and through. Apocalyptic is the mother tongue of Christian theology, especially of Christian hope. So, our beloved Bible must be interpreted anew in a non-mythological way and the stakes, spiritual and political, are high. Fortunately, the New Testament itself begins to do so. Some of that reassessment is beginning in our passage this morning, read just a few moments ago. The end is not yet. This is just a beginning. Some of the ethical application and communal reinterpretation of this will come in a few verses later. You have no idea, says the scripture then, if or when the end will come, so in good scout fashion, simply be prepared. Every day is your last. But most of the courageous imagination in this regard is not found in the Gospel of Mark. It is found in the Gospel of John, aided somewhat by the later Paul. That is, the fictional, pseudo-biblical consolation literature of our 21st century apocalyptic literalism needs to be left behind. It is not true. Not to the Bible, not to the church, not to the mind, not to your experience. Humans, granted, we may make of this earth the scenery of the novel The Road on our own. We pray, 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 it may not be so. But even if that were to occur, the end is not yet. That is, 
You cannot escape your responsibility for the future of planet Earth by hiding behind the skirts of an unfounded, ultimately unbiblical apocalypticism. It will not do in this sense to let go and let God. We are not free to avoid our responsibility to the environment with the excuse that the Lord may return in a generation or two anyway and who needs gasoline in the rapture. We are not free to avoid our responsibility to seek a common global peace cognizant of the hard-won insights of pacifism and just war theory both on the bet that time is running out for the late great planet Earth. We are not free to construe current events in the Middle East on the templates of colorful but unhistorical apocalyptic myths for the consoling sucker of somehow thinking that God handles the Middle East any differently than Asia or Alaska. We are not free to project our anxieties about the dilemmas of the current age, an age, by the way, that one philosopher supposed to have seen the end of history, out onto a far-off falsehood like the raptures of fancy fiction or facsimile in order to avoid what we, of course, have to do in every other sphere of life, and so we have to do in faith and politics both, that is, negotiate, compromise, discuss, trade, and muddle through. Most especially, places like ours, Marsh Chapel, with such a rich heritage of hope, must also expect of ourselves a rich offering to the future that comports with our inheritance, to whom much has been given, from him much is expected. We are not free to neglect the rudiments of a common globe-saving hope. So here is our freedom. Pray daily for the hope of the world think creatively about the hope of the world, act specifically week by week in communion with a reliable hope for, humanly speaking, the future is up to you. And for goodness sake, leave behind, left behind. We could see at breakfast that day that Andrew Young had aged. He walked more slowly, his skin was weathered, he carried some more weight, but he was and is a wise man, and he lives in hope. Asked about his education, he recalled a single informal study group led by Professor Bill Bradley of Hartford Theological Seminary decades ago. The students gathered for hours of conversation encouraged by their teacher, said Young. That group, that group gave me hope. They gave me my worldview, the worldview I have to this day. It is a worldview centered in Christ. Young's worldview owes something to Reinhold Niebuhr, with whom we close this morning. Quote, nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing true or beautiful makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, therefore, we are saved 
by love. Amen. As the choir sang earlier, Paul's letter to the Philippians advised, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So let us heed his advice and pray. You are welcome to stand, remain seated, or come forward and kneel at the altar rail. Now let us sing together hymn 473, Lead Me Lord. Father, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare to yours. We come and worship before you, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Holy Father, we give you glory, honor, and thanks. Merciful Father, we ask for your forgiveness, for we have sinned. We hold grudges boasting that this is a sign of our strength. We judge others and ourselves by worldly attributes like looks, power, and wealth. Holy Spirit, we eagerly call on you to create in us clean hearts and renew a right spirit within us so that we exercise the true strength of forgiveness and with a godly view recognize faith and character as, true, as the true measure of a person. Lord, hear our prayers for your grace and mercy. We honor, remember, and give thanks for fathers and father figures that set an example for doing what is good. They lovingly encouraged and disciplined us and taught us to respect ourselves and others. And we are grateful for fathers who taught us about you. We ask you to guide all parents, mothers as well as fathers, and bless them with the patience and wisdom to raise children in today's challenging environment. We pray for our recent graduates, those who have recently taken the oath of military service, newlyweds, new parents, recent retirees, and all who are currently enduring or imminently facing life-changing events. Guide them, gracious Father. We pray for your healing. We pray for your comfort. We pray for your peace. Thank you, Father.
We offer these prayers in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And now as a community of faith, we join voices to pray together the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace of the Lord be always with you. Good morning. My name is Rachel, and I'm the Director of Hospitality here at Marsh, and I want to welcome you to church this morning. We hope that you'll take a moment to fill out your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew so that you can get to know one another better, and we can help you with that. On July 15th, we will be holding a vacation Bible school here at Marsh. It will take place after church and will involve singing and other activities for the children. July 1st is our, annual, our monthly potluck, and we will be having our annual summer barbecue that day after church. Next Sunday morning at 9.45 a.m., we'll be having a summer reading suggestion circle. So if you are reading something that you want to share, please bring it, and if not, come and find out what others are reading. We encourage you to keep an eye on our chapel website, bu.edu chapel, for all the upcoming services and activities. You will also find the opportunity for online giving there. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
Dear God, we come before you today in curiosity and humility with hope. We present these gifts as an offering for the furthering of your kingdom and our world into the unforeseeable future. In your name we pray, amen. sun shall warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you, the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever. Amen. <laughs> 